Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says that Timothy is a rare, almost one-of-a-kind kind of guy because he genuinely seeks after the welfare of others. And uh, Bob is one such brother, and it's a joy to know him and just see his example of faithfulness through the years. Uh, I'm Leland Brown. I'm the young adult pastor here uh, at East Cooper, and uh, Buster is still on his international world travel, so I'll, be, uh, I'll have the joy of sharing the word with you this morning. Uh, our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 7, so please turn there. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's in the back of your Bible. It's the 10th from last book, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, as we finish getting there, I want to wish you a happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, if you are not uh, a football person, two teams play in the Super Bowl every year. Um, this year, it's the uh, New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles. Most likely, like most of America, you are rooting against the Patriots. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyways, uh, this is a rematch from the 2005 Super Bowl. Uh, they played then, uh, and since then, the Patriots have been back seven times, and the Eagles have not been back once. And whether you care about football or not, you got to know that those locker rooms are going to feel a little bit different this afternoon. For the Patriots, it might just be business as usual. I mean, after winning his second Super Bowl, Tom Brady said, what's next, you know? Uh, but for the Eagles, there's probably this weight to what they're doing. Uh, there's a significance, maybe even a sense of destiny. And with that, probably a little bit of terror. Even the guys who get paid millions of dollars to play football cannot escape the butterflies. And that's, a, that's one of the paradoxes of life. Um, new privilege and responsibility is most often attended with a little bit of terror, with a deep sense of inadequacy. Just think of a 15-year-old fresh off of barely passing their written driver's exam on that first drive with mom, you know? Or maybe, maybe, maybe mom's the one doing that, right? <laughs> or uh, uh, most recently for me, uh, think of a brand new mama and daddy in the hospital looking down at their little baby, and it's so wonderful and precious, and they look down, this is a beautiful, this is amazing, but they look at each other, and they either say or are thinking, how are we going to do this? I had a friend in the ward uh, who doesn't go to this church, so I feel like I can say this. He shared with me that uh, on the night of the birth of his first child, he spent the entire evening in the hospital janitor's closet having a panic attack. And I think that any dad that really gets a, 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 a grip on the task of raising a child uh, should probably jump right in. If you can get there, if you can feel the, the, the sense of inadequacy, you can probably get a sense of what it would be like to have Second Timothy written to you. Um, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4 that he has fought the good fight, he's finished the race, he's kept the faith. And then he basically says, you're up, buddy. It's, it's Timothy's turn. He hands off his ministry to Timothy. In chapter 1, he says, Timothy, you're the guy in Ephesus with a sincere faith. You're the one in charge. Just back up for a second. Paul is handing off responsibility for leading the most significant group of people in the universe to Timothy. That's the church, the people of God, the only ones going into, eternity, into heaven, right? The people who are going to rule the world in eternity. And Paul says, it's on you now 
to lead them. It's on you to keep this going. And here's the real scary thing this morning that might send us running to the closets, and that is that if you're a believer in Jesus and you know him and you love him, it's your responsibility too. The God of heaven and earth, whose purpose is in the book of Hebrews is to bring many sons to glory, who says, who says in, in the book of Revelation that one day he's going to bring people from every tribe and language and nation to worship before the Lamb. What's his plan to bring that about? It's you and me. Feel like running? Uh, if, you're, if you don't, let me, just, let, me just, let me just help you feel the panic a little bit, okay? Think about how significant this work is. There is a real sense in which God can say, I'm sovereign over salvation, and the people around you, their souls, you are responsible for them. Um, think about how difficult the work is. You never know how hard it is to talk about Jesus until you try. God has laid on us the responsibility to carry the gospel forward. And if you get a sense of the, uh, the weight of that and of your inadequacy in that, I think 2 Timothy 2 is going to be a real encouragement to you. Um, God does not just give his people responsibility. Uh, he gives them grace and he gives them instruction for fulfilling it. So let's, let's hear the scriptures. Uh, chapter two, uh, first, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we just consider our responsibility before you, as we hear your word, we do pray, as verse 7 says, that you would give us understanding. And what we're really after this morning is you, and for you to come and to minister personally through the Spirit, through the preaching of your word. And we welcome whatever it takes to bring that about. In Jesus' name, amen. If you talk to Christians who uh, love the Bible and who uh, love the Word, typically you can get some pretty common consensus answers to big questions. Like if you ask, what is the foundation of the Christian life? What's it all built on? That's pretty simple. It's, it's Jesus crucified. That's 1 Corinthians 3. If you ask, what's the purpose of of the Christian life. Well, John 16 says that this is eternal life, to know God, to know Son. You know, we could read Desiring God by Piper. You know, it's glorifying God by enjoying Him. That's the purpose. But if you ask the average Christian, maybe if I pass out some note cards and we all wrote down, what is the primary activity of the Christian life? What should Christians do primarily? I don't think we'd get very much consensus. There are thousands of things we could do, hundreds of things we're commanded to do. Is there really one main thing that we're called to do? 
Maybe to put it a different question to you guys, how has God intended and planned and commanded this responsibility he's given us to be carried out? Has he given us instructions on how the gospel goes forward here and abroad? Has he spoken about it? It seems fairly clear that he's spoken in 2 Timothy about it. God, God provides his power for his mission, a pattern for his mission, and a perspective for his mission. Let's see the power first. In verse 1, we see the, that the power for the mission of God is experiencing the grace of God. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by grace. And it's just wonderful that we can start with the beauty of the gospel. I, I, you're probably expecting some kind of like hoorah charge, like go get it. You know, get off, you know, stop being lazy, go, go get after the gospel. And in any other world religion, we go to a, a Hindu temple or a, like, you'd get that. Go try harder. And here from the scriptures, the first command, the thing that must be done if anything's to be done, is to be strengthened by grace. To have someone greater than you come and empower your life, to be made strong. And notice that it's being made strong not by God's power, but by His grace. Uh, grace is a, is a very central word. It's a kind of a multifaceted word. It, it basically means God's favor or His kindness. It can be shorthand for all of salvation. It can particularly mean gifts of grace. Um, just to give you a picture, think of a, a, the smile of God the affection he has for you and everything that flows from that. That's grace. And that grace here is what strengthens his people for obedience. Notice, uh, notice where this grace is found. Just in Christ Jesus. Before we move on, just, just notice it's not in church membership. It's not in having the right views, being a moral person being in church for your whole life. It's in, in Christ Jesus, in a relationship with him, in a living and vibrant relationship with him. As, as the rest of the Bible tells us, through repentance and faith, through trusting that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is enough for you. Richard Baxter, a famous Puritan pastor said, beware of holding the bread of life out to others and starving yourself. So if you're, if you're just visiting, if you're new, if you're checking out Christianity, maybe you've, or maybe you've been here for 20 years, and you can't remember the last time the grace of Jesus personally impacted you, my first encouragement would be care for your own soul. Feed of Jesus. Eat of him. Find life in him. And this life in Jesus overflows. Uh, that, that's the idea here. The Christian life is meant to be full on the inside and overflowing on the outside. That's how God's mission works. It starts with experiencing his grace. Uh, Psalm 84 says, the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Um, a couple days ago, it's a little nasty outside right now, but today, or Thursday, Thursday, it was sunny and 70 in February. Only in Charleston, right? I mean, we, we, we live in a great place, but but uh, my wife came home from work and she said, I just want to go sit out in the sun. 
And so like a couple of rednecks, we put a hammock and a, a lawn chair out in the front yard and just kind of basked in the sun in our front yard. It was great. And I tell you what, you know, it's been months since I've done that. We just got over snowpocalypse, all that stuff. And 10 minutes in the sun was more refreshing to me than anything I've done in months. And I think that the general idea uh, of verse 1 is if you want to go on God's mission, if you want to do anything useful to the Lord, get in the sun. Where does the warmth of God's affection come from? Where does the heat of zeal for him, the life that he gives? It's in the face of Jesus. Seek him. I just want to encourage you uh, to things in application. Um, first, I'll just say that it's very tempting when we talk about obedience in the Christian life to, to kind of grumble like, oh my gosh. Like, you guys might think in a few minutes, is Leland just telling me one more thing I have to do? Like, is that what this sermon's about? And what's wonderful about being a Christian is that grace propels obedience and grace empowers obedience. That when you step out in faith to obey what God has commanded, to take up that responsibility he's given you, he meets you with his grace. He gives what he commands. Uh, the Spurgeon quote says in your bulletin, it says, uh, the Lord may not give gold, but he'll give grace. He may not give gain, but he'll give grace. We may be called to labor and to suffer, but with the call there will come all the grace required. So if you're a little discouraged, a little hesitant, a little, I just don't want to do any, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. Let the grace of Jesus, let his favor, let the, the grace of the risen and reigning Jesus, who stands ready to pour out his power on anyone who wants to be faithful to him, get in his presence. You'll be enabled. If you're, a, if you're trying to live for the Lord, and you're trying particularly to do the things we're going to talk about in a moment, you're trying to entrust the faith to others, and then it's 10 times harder than you ever thought possible, and you're worn out, and it's crushing you. People are hard, fruit is little, it's requiring a lot of patience. Maybe the thing you need to do this morning is to get alone with God and do not leave his presence until your heart's been strengthened. He answers when we call. So God gives us power for his mission. The power for the mission of God is experiencing the grace of God. But what particularly does God give us his power for? What is the purpose of God's power here in 2 Timothy? Uh, we'll see that it is, it is that, so that people who have the gospel, who have it in its fullness, God gives us his power so those people will take it and so entrust it to others, trust it to a few, that they can go and do likewise. So that's kind of a pack statement. I'll say it again. God gives us his grace, his strength, so that those who have the gospel will take it and entrust it to a few so well that they go and do likewise. That what God has done in their lives to the gospel, that those people, they labor and they pray and they suffer so that it gets done in other people's lives. We'll dive in and we'll see it. Verse 2 begins with what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. This is kind of shorthand for everything you've heard from me, Timothy. What you've seen in me. The, the doctrines of the gospel, the theology, but also the life of a gospel minister. How I've lived in your presence. The gospel, theology of the gospel leads to a gospel lifestyle. What you've heard, Timothy, take that as it's impacted you. 
And look at the, uh, look at the point. What's, he, what, what's gonna happen when Timothy does this? At the very end, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Something incredible about this text is you have four generations of Christians here. You've got Paul, the apostle, Timothy, his younger disciple, faithful men who I presume will be younger in the faith, and then others. There's a long-term view here. There's a strategy here. The idea is that what happened in Paul's life gets reproduced over generations. And how's Timothy to do that? How is something so marvelous possible? Verse 2 tells us in the right in the middle, it says, entrust that what Timothy has heard, he is to entrust to faithful men. Notice it's not teach, it's not tell, it's not help, it's not model, it's entrust. Uh, the idea of this word uh, in Greek is um, of a steward over a household, someone who doesn't own the stuff, but he just manages it, of him passing on his job to somebody else. That's the idea. Um, I was recently uh, wasting time on my iPhone news app. I'll just repent publicly of that. Um, but I ran across this article about America's most expensive house. It's being built in Los Angeles, of course, and it's been dubbed The One. It is worth about $500 million. Here's what, here's what you got in the house, okay? Uh, the contractors say that it took a, mar a, mar a mountain of marble to build. It's got its own bowling alley, 40-person theater, nightclub, salon, and most notably, a jellyfish room where all the walls and ceiling uh, have been replaced with jellyfish tanks full of luminescent jellyfish. Wow, it also has uh, infinity pools that surround the property, creating a moat. You can have your own little castle. Um, imagine for a second, all right, not that you own that house, but that you work for the guy who owns that house. You know, they're super rich, so they travel all over, and your job is to stay there and to manage the property and to make it excellent. And you've spent 20 years doing this, and you, you have owned the details. You know everything. You know the jellyfish's names, all right? You, you, you know exactly how slick Master likes the bowling alley, right? You know just what chemicals to put in the infinity pools to keep them nice. You've mastered it. You love your master. You love this house. And now it's time to pass the responsibility on to someone else. How do you do it? Do you give an instruction manual? <laughs> Who here has been to Lowe's and... <laughs> send over an instruction manual for something to install in their house, right? Probably not a good idea. Um, do, you, do you give them a, maybe a video? You send them to a class? Probably not. If you're wise, you take that guy and you spend the last two or three years of your career training them. You go with them. You, you introduce them to the jellyfish, right? You tell them exactly how master likes things. And, and in, this, in this text, the gospel is that precious possession, that multi-million dollar mansion that is wonderful, but that very easily can fall into disrepair in the wrong hands. And the call of this passage is for those who have the gospel, who get it, who have a lifestyle that flows from the gospel, that they take what they have and they give themselves wholeheartedly to having that reproduced in the lives of others. That's the idea here, carefully, painstakingly. It's not enough to get the right people in the right room and to teach them to do stuff. There's more to it. There's a life-on-life -life component. So that's the, I think that's the argument of verse 2. And I'm going to argue in a moment that this is the primary way that God has designed the mission of the church to move forward. 
This is, this is his pattern, his model, the way he intends for the gospel to, to go out in this room, in our community, in the world. This is, what he, this is what he's always done. A few at a time until they really get it and reproduce their lives. And he might, it's kind of a radical argument. You might be thinking, it's just one Bible verse. Oh my goodness, you know? Um, let, me, let me have a get there. Uh, this is the only verse in 2 Timothy and in my reading, the entire New Testament that talks about the actual people that will make up the church in the future. Now, of course, Jesus speaks about the future. He says, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail, right? But this is the only verse that has actual people in mind who will, who will come after us. This is the only verse that talks about how in 30 years from now, when half of us have gray hair and the rest are dead, right? Okay, who's gonna be here? That's what verse two is about. Only one in this book, perhaps in the whole Bible or a whole New Testament. Second, uh, this was Jesus's model. Uh, just if you took a 24-hour survey of, of how the Lord lived his actual life in the three years of his ministry, of course he preached, he ministered to people, um, he did all sorts of stuff. But of the 24 hours, he spent most of his time with 12 dudes. They were his plan for the future. He was banking everything on them. If you notice, not a lot of people actually responded in genuine ways to Jesus' preaching. But he entrusted the faith to these men. In fact, there are two times recorded, at least in, in my recollection in the New Testament, where Jesus spends the whole night praying. One is before the cross, and the other is before he picks his 12 disciples. Um, it's not just Jesus' model. Uh, this, this blew me away. I was reading this week, studying for this uh, sermon, and uh, I came across a quote from Billy Graham. If you don't know who Billy Graham is, you should, you should do some research, but he's the, probably the greatest American evangelist in history. Uh, he, in the days when evangelistic rallies worked, he was the, one of the primary men that God used throughout the world. Um, he could just preach. People were drawn when he, when he preached. And uh, someone sat down with Billy Graham, interviewed him, and said, hey, Billy, you are a pastor of a major church in a giant city. What is your plan to reach the city? I don't think he's going to say, I'm going to preach. But if you look in your bulletin, here's what he says. I think one of the first things I would do would be to get a small group of eight or 10 or 12 people around me that would meet a few hours a week and pay the price. It would cost them something in time and effort. I would share with them everything I have over a period of years. Then I would actually have 12 ministers among the lay people who in turn could take eight or 10 or 12 more and teach them. Christ, I think, set the pattern. Just think about that, guys. Someone whose primary gifting a, a unique gifting in, a, in generations to preach publicly. He says, what's the model of the New Testament? Life by life. People who have the gospel who are willing to pay the cost and people who want more of the gospel who are willing to pay the cost. Getting together, taking the truth, not just telling it, but massaging it in other people's lives until they become, they have what you have. So uh, one of the main things I want you to walk out of here with this morning is either get entrusted or go in trust. If you're thinking, man, I, I can't give the God, I don't even really have the gospel very well. Um, I don't really, I don't have enough. I feel like I would be terrible at leading. I don't have anything to give. If that's you, then take this next season of your life and make your one aim to have the gospel entrusted into you. Um, seek out, now again, please, please don't hear me say that you should wait around until someone appoints you a mentor. Right? That's not what I'm saying. 
Right? The idea here is you go, take, take your spiritual development as your own responsibility and you go, you find someone, you prayerfully ask, please, I will rearrange my schedule. I will pay the price, as Billy Graham said, to have what you have. I, I know most people I know would, would gladly meet with you then. And if you can't, if there's no one around, let's just pretend there's no one around. Guys, you have a ton of great places to start right here. We've got great classes. We've got a, a wall full of books right outside this room that you can, you, can go, uh, you can go find books that pastors at this church have said, these will help you in spiritual development. Go get the gospel entrusted into your own life. And if you have it, go entrust. One of the most impactful things you can ever do for the kingdom even though it doesn't look great, you're not gonna get a lot of Instagram love about this, okay? Is you can take a couple of people, just a couple of people over a couple of years and give what you have to them and to make all your prayers and all your efforts and all your sacrifice for those couple of years for their growth. If you do that, the kingdom advances. The church is secure in the future. The gospel goes forward. Um, And that relates to a question that you guys might be asking right now. Leland, how can this be the main thing? There's so many other things we have to do, right? I mean, maybe to put it a little more clearly, uh, if you were sitting in this room last week, uh, you heard Matt preach about the call of God's people to mercy and justice. Um, how do I, like, do I have to pick? Is that what you're saying? Here, here's what I'll just say. Uh, a merciful lifestyle or a lifestyle that serves in the church or a lifestyle um, that shares the gospel is a fruit of discipleship. It's a fruit of having the gospel entrusted to you. So yes, absolutely, we are all called to seek justice and mercy and to share our faith. But if you want other people to do it, if you want this church to be full of people who have a heart for the things that you have a heart for, who can, who can seek justice in a gospel-centered way, who can share their faith, then what you need to do is go and trust your faith to them. Take what you have, take what you've learned, and seek with all of your heart, with all of your effort, to see it reproduced in their lives. Just one more thing of application from this particular verse. Uh, Maybe you are overwhelmed. Maybe you're like Leland. I'm a mom. I have five kids who never leave. I don't make it out of sweatpants most days, okay? How am I supposed to go and trust the gospel to people? Uh, Maybe you work a a crazy job. You, You can honestly say before God, to survive, I don't have time for anything else. That's you, my encouragement to you from this text is to start where you are and who you're with. If you're a parent of young children, I'm I'm with you, it is consuming. But you can make verse two your parenting goal, right? Now it is not, listen, listen, it's a blessing of God to have moral, nice children who aren't heretics, who get good jobs, who marry well, who come back and give you grandbabies, okay, that's a blessing. But that is not a good enough blessing to spend your whole life laboring for. If you're going to give 18 years of sweat and blood to your children, make make your aim that they get so filled up with the gospel that their desire is to go give it to others. Make that your primary goal for them. If you're an overwhelmed parent, man, and you want to do this, and you have a heart for this, make your home a mission-sending agency. Maybe not international, I mean, be open to that, of course, but, but, but make the way your home functions, the way your parenting goals work, the way your discipline works, the way your encouragements go, point them outward. Give them a heart for this. Move the church forward 
through all of those diapers and those disciplines and all those things you deal with. So start where you are and who you're with if you're overwhelmed. But this passage is very aware that what, what it is asking us to do is difficult. Anyone who's tried this has found it difficult. People are difficult. Anyone who's tried to give their lives to people find that you're constantly, your margin is, is, is less, you're, you're more tired, you're struggling. This is hard. But the passage realizes that. And so the last thing we see, we've seen power for God's mission, we've seen a pattern, and now we're going to see a perspective, a perspective for God's mission. Verse 3 says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Um, why is it share in suffering? Well, that's because Paul was in prison suffering, and he's calling Timothy, take up what I'm doing, man. But notice, he doesn't say suffer like a martyr, like Paul's about to. He says suffer like a soldier. Um, and just, just ask yourself the question, why do, what, is, what does the suffering of a soldier look like? Well, soldiers... They're tired, they carry large packs, they sweat, they have big guns, their lives are sometimes in danger. They sleep on the ground, they eat crud for months at a time. Why? For the sake of their mission. So, so normally when we think about suffering, normally we think about culture-wide, government-wide persecution of Christians, which is a biblical category, right? Or we think of the trials of life that anyone can experience. This is actually a third category. It's intentionally chosen discomfort for the sake of ministry. It's intentionally embraced struggle for the sake of mission. Paul, uh, Paul kind of flushes this out with three little pictures. And just notice, uh, I don't think these verses are meant to have strict word-by-word uh, -word interpretations. I think they're just more pictures to put in Timothy's head. He says, talks about a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. I think the idea here generally is, Timothy, when you wake up tomorrow and church life is hard and you're exhausted and you want to give up, I want you to think like a soldier. That's the idea. But these three images are really interesting. And so uh, I'll just uh, talk about two things they have in common and a few things that set them apart. And then we'll uh, apply it for a moment. Look at the soldier. Or actually, sorry, what, are, what do they all have in common? A soldier and an athlete and a farmer. They're all sweaty. <laughs> they all work. It's all exhausting. Ask a college athlete. They wake up in the morning exhausted and sore. It's not that glorious. You know? um, a farmer, he's got, he's got dirty hands with calluses on him. He's sunburnt. A soldier, again, sleeps on the ground, if he sleeps at all. So, so in the present, there is difficult, uncomfortable, hard work. That's the idea. But notice, it's not just that. There's also a future reward. Why does the soldier do what he does? Because he wants to please the one who enlisted him. There's a promotion at the end of the road if he's faithful. Why does an athlete compete? Why is he sweating? Why is his heart in the red zone? Because he wants to get crowned. Why is the farmer working so hard? Because he wants the first share of the crops. Again, just look at the beauty of the gospel here. It would be enough for God to say, I have bought you and saved you. Now go live like a soldier. But here he says, go live like a soldier and experience my abundant reward. Experience that, the, that this life is not, not it. And if you live this way now, if you have some gospel grit right now in your life, there is glory ahead for you. There's a huge reward. It will cost you 
but it will be glorious. There's also a few things that uh, set these, each of these images apart. Notice that the soldier avoids getting entangled in civilian pursuits. Um, I think the idea there is that he avoids distraction. The, the, the word here, entangled, is, is, uh, it basically just means getting so caught up in one thing that you miss the main thing. In other words, a soldier might very well enjoy the Super Bowl, and he's certainly going to pay his bills, and he's going to enjoy all the good food and stuff that he gets to eat, but he's not going to let any of those things take his eye off the prize. And in fact, for a soldier, you know, why do soldiers go on leave? Why does the army do that? So that they can be refreshed to get back to their mission. I think there's a, a real category in the Christian life that even entertainment, even the things we do to refresh ourselves are, are mission-focused. What does, the, what does the athlete have to do? He has to compete according to the rules. I think the idea here is that people who entrust the faith also have to live out the faith. There's no uh, get out of obedience free card for someone who would make disciples. Um, the farmer, what's that the farmer part? I think it's his hard work. Um, I think the idea here is there are all sorts of kinds of farmers. Think about uh, just driving through your neighborhood. There are some yards that are very well kept and then there's my yard, you know, where the edges are all overflowing and yard work hasn't been done in months and I have kids so I have an excuse, right? But, all right, in the Christian life, there are both of those kind of people. There are people who get after it. The people who kind of just coast along. I think this verse says, man, if you get after it, you get the first share of the crops. There's a reward. So, here is the soldier's perspective. It embraces difficulty. It understands that ministry is hard. It actually is okay with that. It says, I'm going to embrace this. And I think through, through this perspective, God is calling us, hey, let's, listen, you can risk or you can rust. You can sacrifice or you can stagnate. You can go all in on this mission to Mount Pleasant and to Moscow and to the nations. Or you can miss out on God's blessing in his presence. I think that's the soldier's perspective. I do think, though, uh, that might be kind of tough, but it is very freeing. Um, I was recently in Amman, Jordan. Uh, I had the great privilege of going over there with one of ECBC's global partners uh, to run a conference for Middle Eastern pastors and church planners from Jordan and other parts of the Middle East. And it was, it was a joy. I learned so many things. It's great. Um, However, the highlight of the trip for me, above anything else, was spending time with Arabic Christians. And, uh, you know, I think Jordan is, I think, 97 or 98% Muslim. Um, there's some difficult governmental circumstances there. Nothing uh, super intense compared to other places in the Middle East. Anyways, uh, I was blown away that these Christians that are a tiny minority could just have so much stinking fun together. I mean, I don't speak Arabic, so it's possible they were just laughing at me the entire trip, you know? But, but someone would just say something, and the whole room would erupt with laughter. They were just so warm. And they really stood out uh, compared to the other people in Jordanian culture. Anyways, so I just kind of, I was really insulated just with the Christians all week, and uh, I kind of started to think that maybe it's not so bad over here. Like, everybody's just so happy. Like, like maybe they're just not, maybe it's not so tough to be in Jordan. And then uh, the last night, uh, ECBC's partner was driving me to the airport, and uh, I think he wisely shared this with me at the end of my trip. But he said, Leon, that little city, 
that we were uh, ministering in, that you were preaching in, um, is the number one place in the world for ISIS recruits. It is one of the darkest places that you can live and minister in in Jordan. Of course, my first thought was, you know, (laughs) just kidding. Um, I'm ashamed to say, but my second thought was, how in the world do these dear brothers that we have been with all week have so much joy when they put their life in their hands to talk about Jesus? And I think a part of the answer is, of course, the Spirit's doing that, but a part of the answer is they embraced being soldiers. They embraced that what the Lord would require of them would be tough. And they were given, in embracing that, a deep joy that's available to you. Not just joy, though. I think there's also um, usefulness available to you. There's a little quote in your bulletin from a famous general. It says, a handful of soldiers is better than a mouthful of arguments. Um, and I think that's just, that's just hilarious, but I think that's true in church history. How has God primarily worked through history? I mean, there have been some good arguments, right? Primarily, though, he's worked through a few good soldiers, people who embraced every bit of what he called them to do. You can be useful to the Lord you embrace that difficulty will come along with entrusting the faith. You can be greatly used of God. He loves to use people. So maybe uh, one thing you walk out of here with is, what is one soldier-like thing I can do this year? Or maybe, what is one way I can take a difficulty in my life related to my ministry that drives me crazy and just say, you know what? I'm gonna be a farmer. I'm gonna be patient about this. I'm gonna be a soldier. I'm gonna sleep on the ground for a little bit and just embrace that. So I recently uh, graduated from seminary and uh, what I love about that is I now get to read and listen to the things that I choose. It's been really good. Uh, And just kind of nerd alert here, the first book I chose to listen to is a book about late middle-aged kings of England. So all the guys who ruled England uh, between uh, 11 and 1300 Anyways, um, don't ask me why, but it's been very interesting. And the first king that was talked about in uh, this book was King Henry I. And King Henry I, uh, while he was alive, was a great king. Uh, He ruled justly. He set up this very uh, sophisticated system of laws. He he had the, he just, the people loved him. All the other rules obeyed him. He just knew how to do it. But they called the age of his kingship, the age of shipwreck. And the reason why is because Henry did everything right except secure an heir to come after him. He didn't have somebody to follow him. And almost the moment he died, chaos, civil war, 30 years of bloodshed and burnt crops and starving people in his country, just because He did great in the present and did not secure the future. And I think what the Lord would preserve us from this morning is feeling good about our present and failing to labor for the future. Primarily the way God accomplishes his worldwide universe impacting mission. He does it when a few people who have the gospel 
labor hard to give it to a few others to the point where their lives multiply. And I, I, the question is not, is God going to accomplish his mission, right? I kind of say this at the end, God is sovereign, right? We cannot do anything to hinder his purposes. He is going to accomplish his plan. The question is, will we get the joy of being a part of what he's doing? Will we take up the power and the pattern and the perspective that he requires of those who extend the gospel? Maybe do so. Let's pray. Lord, I indeed pray that um, it would be true of us that we take what you've said in the scriptures about how the mission of God moves forward and that we would apply that to our lives. I pray for people here who are grounded in their faith to have a heart and burden to see what God has done in them to be done in others. I pray you just do that in us. Bless your church. Um, enable us in Jesus' name. Amen.